Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Rick Jackson, senior host and producer for IdeaStream. I am very pleased to be here to moderate today's debate between the two candidates vying for Ohio's 16th district congressional seat in the U.S. House of Representatives, Republican Anthony Gonzalez and Democrat Susan Moran Palmer. Ohio's 16th congressional seat is open for the first time in eight years. The district's located in the north-central portion of Ohio. It includes all of Wayne County and portions of Cuyahoga, Medina, Portage, Stark, and Summit counties. Today we'll hear from both candidates on why they believe they deserve your vote. Here's how the debate will flow. We'll start with questions from myself, then move to questions from the audience. Candidates will have 90 seconds to respond to questions directed at him or her. The other candidate would have 60 seconds for a rebuttal. For questions directed at both candidates, each will have 90 seconds to respond, and we will work very diligently to ensure that the time does become equal for both candidates. Throughout the debate, candidates will be notified they have 15 seconds remaining and when their time is completed. A little about our candidates. Anthony Gonzalez, a former football player for Ohio State University and the Indianapolis Colts, is the Republican nominee. He obtained an MBA from Stanford University and was formerly the CEO of Chalk Schools, an education technology company. Susan Moran Palmer, a former health care provider, is the Democratic nominee. She obtained a Bachelor of Business Administration from Baldwin Wallace University and was formerly working in sales for a medical device company. Given that this debate is limited to one hour, we ask that you hold your applause except for two occasions, at the end when we close the debate, and right now as we welcome our two candidates, Anthony Gonzalez and Susan Moran Palmer. I can tell you they both appreciate your enthusiasm. I appreciate your enthusiasm. We will begin with opening statements for the two candidates. Those are not 90 seconds. Those will be two minutes each. A coin toss earlier today did determine that Ms. Moran Palmer will go first. With that, let's begin. You have two minutes. Thank you. Thank you so much to the City Club for hosting this forum today. This is the first time in this general election cycle that we have met in a public forum and have been able to answer questions to voters from the 16th Congressional District. And as I look around the room, I actually see several voters from the 16th Congressional District. Many of you made a long drive in. Thank you for coming in to have this forum in front of everyone and in public. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I grew up in Youngstown, Ohio. I am a Packard Electric Millwright's daughter. My mom worked for the library system. Uh, she's a first-generation American. Her parents emigrated to the United States to live the American dream. Uh, I am fortunate to have grown up in a double union, rock-solid middle-class environment and climbed the economic ladder out of Youngstown. When I look today, that ladder is not there anymore. That combination of hard work and higher education that allowed me to rise up to the successful person I am today is no longer available to children following behind me. Those have been policy decisions and policy decisions that have hurt the American middle class, the American working class that I have come from. 
I have traveled this district. I have done somewhere close to 525 events. I've worn out two pair of shoes. Uh, I have been to every pancake breakfast, voter forum, League of Women Voters. I have been everywhere. I have been asked questions. I have been yelled at. And that's all part of the democratic process. And that type of transparency is what voters are begging for. They want accountability in elected officials. They want public town halls. They want you to come into their office and talk to them. They want that kind of interaction you should have with your representative in Congress. So I've tried my hardest to make my campaign that kind of transparency that kind of accessibility. I've also accepted no corporate PAC money at all because I think money has far too great an influence on our elected officials today. So thank you again for coming to the City Club. I'm really excited to be here. I'm Susan Moran Palmer. Thank you. Mr. Gonzalez. Thank you. It's just working. Uh, I want to thank the City Club uh, for hosting uh, today's event. It's incredibly important that everybody can, can be here. And I want to thank all of you for taking time out of your very busy schedules uh, to be here this afternoon. My approach and focus in Congress will be decidedly local. Northeast Ohio first, Washington DC last. I stand before you the proud son of two wonderful parents. My mother, a lifelong school teacher, daughter of a World War II veteran. My father, a Cuban immigrant himself, came here to this country and has lived the American dream to the fullest building a successful steel plant on the west side of Cleveland. And his family came here for two reasons. Number one, with a belief that the United States Constitution is the greatest political document in human history. And number two, that this truly is the land of opportunity. In this country, the American dream can be seized. I have been fortunate enough to live part of my dream right here in Northeast Ohio. Growing up in Northeast Ohio, graduating from St. Ignatius, it was off to Ohio State, where I was fortunate to play uh, for the Buckeyes, where I was an academic All-American and a first-round draft pick with the Indianapolis Colts. After moving on from there, it was off to Stanford University, where I, I earned my MBA. I was COO, not CEO of the business that I ran. Um, quick correction, uh, the plane dealers put that. But in any event, um, and, and I came back to, to this community, and I came back to serve, to put the talents that I have to bear in our great community. See, I believe our best days are ahead of us, but we do have our challenges. We have a healthcare system that's too costly for families. We have an education and workforce development system that's not preparing our children well enough for the jobs of the future. And we have trade deals that have asked Northeast Ohio to pay the price for globalization. My commitment to you is to be a new generation of leader in Northeast Ohio, a new generation that will do everything I can to fight for our future and for our community. My name is Anthony Gonzalez, and I look forward to sharing that vision with you over the next hour. Thank you both. We will now begin with questions from myself. Anthony, you can hold for a moment. Susan, the first question is to you, but this is a question for both candidates. Neither of you has held or even run for elective office. We'd like to hear the reasoning behind deciding that you're ready to be a member of the United States House of Representatives as your first elected job, one of the most important 435 jobs in this country. And should you get there, what will you focus on achieving? What committees would you like to be assigned? Well, thank you for the question. Um, my reasons for running for Congress are pretty transparent. I find the country I'm living in, the country that gave me every opportunity I have today, truly at a crossroads. We are either going to continue down this path of constant divisiveness, or we are going to reset the course of our country. As far as the areas I find important, my background is 100% healthcare, either taking care of patients or on the business side of it, but all within that cardiology team. 
I think it's very important to protect the Affordable Care Act. I think that's a primary for me, so that would be commerce for what committee I would be on to address the health care crisis. It's truly a public health care crisis in the United States now. And the second committee I would want would be infrastructure, uh, because I think infrastructure investment in the United States, especially in the Rust Belt area, I hate that term, uh, the industrialized Midwest, we need more investments, investments, infrastructure investments that are net neutral. So we actually make money from them. Think wind farms or solar panels. We need to have that kind of investment in the Midwest to draw more manufacturing back into this area of the country. That is how we are going to grow our economy with high paying jobs, not low paying jobs. We're still dragging quite a bit behind the national average we're still 10% below the median income for the rest of the country. So Ohio has not felt that boom that many areas of the country have. Mr. Gonzalez. Great question. So uh, my reasons for running are, are very simple. I, I spoke in my opening about my father's story and about immigrating to this country. There are so many incredible stories just like that in this room and across Northeast Ohio. We're kind of a beacon for that sort of thing. Uh, and the reality is when you look at the policies that are in place today, a child born today in this country, that dream, it's there, but it's a lot harder today than it was you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And so we have to reform some of these systems, some of these simple ladders to success uh, that all of us have exhibited. So uh, committees for me, number one, ed and workforce. I believe that the way that we're going to have the next generation of, of wage growth in our community is if we reform our education system. Right now, we are bottom of the barrel, dead last amongst advanced economies in math and reading scores. Those are the predictors of GDP growth. We need to reform that. There is no reason why we shouldn't be number one there. And so ed and workforce will always be a big priority for me. That's how we're going to get wages to rise. Uh, number two, uh, energy and commerce and financial services both deal with trade. I believe that the trade deals that we have have robbed Northeast Ohio and asked Northeast Ohio to pay a significant penalty uh, for some of the, the globalization that we've seen. I'm a free trader, but it needs to be fair and balanced. We need to reform these, these platforms so that the good jobs in the manufacturing sector will continue to exist in Northeast Ohio. Uh, and then the last one, obviously, healthcare. We've got to get the cost down. And we, I, I hope there'll be another question on that, but we have to get the cost down for American families. Thank you. Mr. Gonzalez, you talk about reining in federal spending. How do you propose that we do this? What would be cut? How do you pacify those who suffer losses for the benefit of the reduction of financial support? Well, so I think when it comes to a balanced budget, this is the, the number one complaint I have with the Republican Party uh, as, as Congress. I think uh, what we've seen on that omnibus spending bill that was passed a handful of months ago was a complete disaster. That wasn't even a deal. That was basically both parties pretending deficits don't matter, pretending that a budget doesn't matter, shaking hands, and then walking away. We need to meet in order to balance our budget. One, we need to grow our economy. I think the administration and uh, Republican leadership has moved that ball in the right direction. We're north of 3% after we've been told for years that we couldn't get higher than 2%, 1.5%. So number one, we have to grow the economy. That'll bring more revenues in. Number two, we need to go to zero-based budgeting. We give the government what they need, not what they want. Uh, number three, we have to protect Social Security and Medicare. Let me say that again. We have to protect Social Security and Medicare. Our seniors have been paying into these programs for their entire lives. They deserve those programs. We cannot cut those programs. We have to save those programs. Uh, and then finally, if we do need revenue, if what I'm saying uh, isn't enough, uh, then I believe I don't believe in raising taxes on Americans. I think we're paying enough taxes. Uh, but if we need to get revenue from somewhere, 
I believe that we should look at reserves, uh, foreign countries that are holding our reserves all over the world. If we want to put a small tax on those, I would be fine with that. That's part of how uh, these currencies get manipulated is, is through the reserve system. And so if we want to put a tax on that, I'm fine with it. Um, but again, grow the economy, zero-based budgeting, protect Social Security and Medicare, uh, and uh, if we're going to tax, we go, go across Thank overseas. Thank you. 60 seconds to respond. Uh, several things. Uh, first off, the tariffs cost American businesses a small fortune. Uh, Ford has announced a billion-dollar loss, $1 billion loss, due to the tariffs in the United States. Now, remember, Ohio is an auto industry state. We still are. We're still number two behind Michigan. So anything that affects the car manufacturers affects Ohio. That's loss of jobs, loss of dollars. The question was on debt. Removing the tariffs would allow American businesses to grow, and that's a good thing. You know, the debt and the deficit are obviously very important, and the GOP tax bill blew a $2 trillion hole in our annual spending. We borrowed money to give a tax cut to the wealthy and corporations. I don't have any trouble with the corporate tax cut. Canada did it responsibly. They cut programs, they made changes, and they paid for it as they went. You just can't blow a hole in, in the deficit and walk away from it and pretend does it, like it doesn't matter. It matters. Now they're going to go after Social Security and Medicare. I, I hear my opponent, but Mitch McConnell stood there and said he was going to cut him. Ms. Palmer, no applause, please. You want to end subsidies for fossil fuel companies. Where should that money go instead, and how does that help Ohio? Well, I do see many fossil fuel companies actually starting to diversify, very similar to R.J. Reynolds w during the smoking was. They started to see their need to diversify away from cigarettes in the same way you're starting to see energy companies uh, encouraging things like cap and trade, which you would never think in a million years that's who would be saying it. So I think uh, diversification for many companies investing in solar fields and energy fields, types of renewal. You know, gas is a perfectly fine step. To get away from coal and oil, that's great. It's less expensive, cheaper energy, cheaper manufacturing. All that goes together. But we need to keep moving on, keep going down that track to renewable energy sources. And there's no reason with our manufacturing base why Ohio can't be central to that. We have a huge solar group between Sandusky and Toledo, some of the original manufacturers of the technology, and they just need some more support. So I'd like to see some of the subsidies going from the fossil fuels going into the renewable energy. Remember, we are walking away from business. Every time we push back from the renewable energy and deny global warming, we just push ourselves away from a huge economic opportunity in this country for jobs and a high growth environment. We have got to embrace this technology. 60 seconds. Well, so with respect to energy sources, I support an all of the above strategy. I don't believe that the government should be picking winners and losers with respect to our energy sources. Uh, one of the things that, that my opponent mentioned that is a common complaint is um, you know, fossil fuels and, and carbon emissions. Let's talk about the reality. The reality is that the United States is further along towards achieving our climate goals as a result of the clean energy that's been discovered in the shale boom and the natural gas boom. That's clean energy. Those are great paying jobs right here in Northeast Ohio, and we are well on our way. Uh, if you want to look at carbon emissions and, and who's kind of causing all that, there is one place to look, and it is China. China, if you add up all of our carbon, add up Europe's, China's still ahead. And so if we're going to do anything about that, uh, we can, I'm happy to add, add that in. But at, at a very basic level, uh, I believe in, in an all-of-the-above strategy that allows the free market to work. Uh, I believe that's created a lot of great-paying jobs in Ohio, and it's brought our energy costs way down. Thank you. Moving on. 
Wednesday through Friday saw 12 attempted bombings at homes or offices of prominent Democrats who've spoken against Donald Trump, including former President Clinton, and at CNN, a news agency some viewers perceive as favoring Democratic policies. Some Congress members said this wouldn't reduce their vocal criticism of the president. Others immediately called the suspect a nut job before we knew the first fact about him and vigorously defended the president's calls for action, sometimes violence. How would you try to heal the widening rift in Congress between red and blue? Anthony Gonzalez. Well, you know, obviously this weekend was a, was a tough weekend uh, for, for everybody in America. Um, for our Jewish community in Pittsburgh who had that devastation, uh, there's nothing worse. The worst attack on the Jewish community on American soil, uh, similar with, with the bombs that were sent out. Uh, we are well past the point where we need to start dialing the rhetoric down and we need to start talking about policies. The reason I got into this race was precisely that. I saw a chaotic political environment. We have challenges as a region. We have to solve them. And we are pulling further and further apart every single day. And I believe that everybody's responsible. Yes, I believe uh, that the president needs to do a better job on rhetoric. But so does everybody else. Everybody in this room has to. I have to. My opponent has to. Any elected member of Congress. This is a communal responsibility. Our culture is continuing to pull apart at the seams, and we can't have that. The only way we're going to solve our problems is the same way we solve our problems in the business community, in our communities, in your families, and that's together. That's by celebrating the common humanity that we have, the things that make us American, the belief that every single person in this country is created equal, equal under God, equal under the law. When we get away from that, we lose our country, and so we have to come back, and that's all of us. That's every single person here. We've got to dial the rhetoric back. Same question. You also have 90 seconds. I was reading Peggy Noonan's article in the Wall Street Journal on Saturday. She said when it comes to these types of situations, the president does poorly. He doesn't have the emotional range or the intellectual toolbox to handle them. And I agree with that quote. I think he has to bear some of the responsibility of the heated rhetoric. Lock her up. Uh, you know, get them out of here, beat them down. I mean, it's constant, and, and I don't blame him for the actual action, but certainly he's stoking some of the division, and he has to accept that responsibility, and Congress has a responsibility as well to stand up to him. I mean, if you set some boundaries, he'll stay a little more in range, tap down some of his more erratic behavior, and we absolutely must do that as a country. Unfortunately, most of my moderate Republicans I used to look up to are no longer in Congress anymore. They have left, and now we're left with people that unfortunately are just getting run over, and that's what a bully loves, is someone they can run over, and that's exactly what he's doing. You need someone that's going to stand up to him. This is just another example of why we need one branch of government in the opposing party. We need those checks and balances. We must respond to the president and his worst urges just to bring that kind of balance back to government that we need. I am hoping that will tone down some of the rhetoric at a national level. Thank you. Thank you. Again, a question for both candidates. Let's talk immigration. We still have illegal entry to the country. The so-called caravan is coming. The administration insists tighter borders mean safer cities, yet evidence that immigrants tend not to be criminals is overwhelming. How many people and in what circumstances would you welcome foreign-born people to the United States? You have 90 seconds. Well, first off, I'm pretty sure we're a land of immigrants. I have no Native American heritage in my body. Uh, I am second generation on, this, on my mom's side of the family, so I take this to heart. And 
Most of my family came over through family sponsorship. So I don't want to get rid of policies that have worked for us over the years. We do have a problem with illegal immigration in the United States. For me, it's around the jobs. People come to this country to earn more money than what they're earning in their country of home origin. We need to put the wall, not at the border, but around our jobs. They need to have a secured ID system. Our social security number is a number you can buy online as an illegal immigrant and get a job in the United States, almost anywhere. <laughs> Sorry. Um, in order to stop the illegal immigration, we have a secured ID system, like a secured social security number. It doesn't put a burden on the employers, but it, it does allow people not to get hired who are not here with legal status. And I think that's vital. A wall at the border just stops coming, someone coming through once, not forever. And most ladders can come over a wall. And about half the people who are here illegally fly in. They overstay a student visa or a tourist visa, and then again, the social security number you can buy online and they stay in our country. This is a never ending problem until we address the job issue. It's exploitation of the illegal immigrants in this country and it's exploitation of the middle class workers who are seeing an erosion in wages due to that kind of competition. Thank you, same question, 90 seconds. Great, so um, look, I, you know, I'm proud of my, my family's immigrant heritage as I know a lot of people are in this room. Um, my family came here legally. Uh, we, Hung, wait, waited in Havana until the visas got processed and then uh, they came in and they came in right to Ohio. Uh, and, and we've been so fortunate to do that. Uh, I believe in a merit-based system. To me, a merit-based immigration system means that you're gonna promote our economic interests and our national security interests. Uh, the, way, the only way you can do that though is with secure borders. The only way, it's like if you were running a business, you, you don't just let anybody show up and start working, right? You want to vet them, you want to interview them, you want to look at their resume, you want to see their, their qualities, and then you decide for yourself whether you want them uh, to be a part of that business. I feel the same way about our immigration system. We need an, a way to vet every single person who wants to come into this country. If they're the right kind of person, then they get, they get in line, they play by the rules, they, they go through the process just like everybody else, um, then there should be a place for them. Uh, but we have to secure that border. One of the reasons why I'm for the wall is for that very reason. Uh, and then additionally, because of the opiates that are, that are coming through the southern border. The reality is 90% of the illegal opiates uh, that are coming into our community are coming directly through our southern border uh, or through the mail uh, from China. And so I believe in securing that border, but I, I believe in a merit-based system as well. I'm gonna call an audible, 30 seconds each here. Who determines right kind of person? I think that's a, that's a discussion, right? That's a negotiation. I mean, we have to sit down as lawmakers both sides of the aisle, n neither party has fixed this, both sides of the aisle, sit down, talk through the issues, and let's determine what that means. Uh, I honestly don't think that will be that hard to figure out. I think if, if we had an honest conversation, we put politics aside, that most people in this room could say, yeah, this is generally kind of what we want. Um, yeah, we can disagree on the margin, but, uh, but I think at a very basic level, uh, we all more or less want the same things. 30 seconds. Uh, when you're looking at merit-based you can have both family-based and merit-based. There's no problem of having both. And with our unemployment rate so low, we need as many people as we can get. So when you look at who can come into this country, it should be based on the needs we have, right? What kind of education do we need? What kind of language skills? Do they speak English? That matters. Uh, and, and the needs of our community. Do we need more sophomore engineers? You know, right now we have a restriction based on country of origin rather than occupation. And I think answering the business community's needs would be a great place to start. Thank you. Question for both. Seemingly every year, the Great Lakes ask for federal funding. The White House threatens to slash it, sometimes in total. 
Our representatives, along with Michigan, Illinois, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, fight to have the money reinstated. What's your standard belief in the need or lack of need for federal support for the Great Lakes? It's your turn to go first. Right. Um, so I think this is a perfect question and a perfect example of where bipartisanship needs to come into play. Um, we have had some great representatives. I know Dave Joyce and Marcy Kaptur have worked together, obviously, on two totally different sides of this issue. Um, and I will work with anybody who wants, to who wants to protect the Great Lakes. I do believe that we need to be fighting for federal funding to protect our Great Lakes. Great Lakes provide drinking water for over 42 million people uh, in the U.S. and Canada. It's an incredible asset, and we need to do everything we can. And so uh, one of my commitments uh, to you is I will fight tooth and nail to make sure that that, fight, that funding is not cut. I don't care who's in office. I don't care who's in the majority. Uh, we need those dollars. They protect the Great Lakes. It's an incredible asset. We need to do everything we can for the Great Lakes. I, yes, actually, I think it was a great example of bipartisanship this year. As they tried to cut the budget, everyone, both senators, every House of Representatives, we didn't have anybody who supported the, the President's cuts to our Great Lakes. And it's not just a recreational facility. You know, it's the highest amount of freshwater fish gets fished out of Lake Erie. So for us, it's an economic as much as it, it's recreational or anything else. And it is a great example of bipartisanship. I am very concerned with both the yearly deficit and the debt in the country that it's going to become a point where we have to start cutting things. We have to start looking at these constant overspending on the yearly omnibus bills as well as the deficit. And the $2 trillion hole from the GOP tax bill is a very serious problem for this country. We have deficit spending this year of $800 billion, and it's going to go up each of the next consecutive years. And that's because, in part, this GOP tax bill. So if we're going to start looking at cutting funding for something so important as the Great Lakes, we have to do a better job balancing our budget in Congress. Your opponent asked for another health questions. I'll give you that. But you do have 30 years as a health care professional. Sure. You will go first on this question, though it's for both. The current Congress working to undo the Affordable Care Act with no plan prepared to replace it. What would you do to reestablish or protect access to affordable health care for underserved Americans? I am so glad you asked this question. You know, it's gotten very fuzzy if you haven't noticed out there. A lot of people saying, oh, I'll protect pre-existing conditions. It comes down to the basics of the law. The health care uh, in the United States, the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, whichever you want to call it, is the only protection we have in the United States for pre-existing conditions. There is nothing else on the books at all. The day Obamacare gets repealed is the day you lose your pre-existing condition protections, period. There is no other law in the books. The Republican Congress have control for Congress for two years, and they have not been able to come up with any alternative plan whatsoever. So please keep that in mind. If somebody tells you they're going to repeal Obamacare, they are taking away your Medicaid expansion. They are taking away your pre-existing condition protections. There is no magic wand that's going to make new legislation come about. The Medicaid expansion in Ohio is also very important to us because we have the largest amount of overdose deaths in the United States. The majority of people are treated with the Medicaid or Medicaid expansion, the addiction treatment. This is monumental. This is your children you're talking about, your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers. It's not just the addiction. We have lots of patients that it, without the Affordable Care Act and the Medicaid expansion and the protections of their pre-existing conditions would not survive. This is life or death. Please don't get wrapped around the policy talks. This is your neighbor's life that you're making decisions on. So I want to point out uh, what you did not hear in that answer. 
Uh, you do not hear anything about addressing the cost in this system. Uh, I am on perfectly comfortable saying I believe that Obamacare was the worst law implemented in my lifetime because it raised health care costs on every single person in this room and across the state of Ohio. There's not a single person who didn't see their health care costs increase. So how do we fix it? What's the way forward? Number one, I do believe we need to protect the Medicaid expansion for our opiate-addicted uh, patients and also pre-existing conditions. But we have to get the cost way down, and it needs to be bipartisan. The Democrats have failed with Obamacare. The Republicans didn't have an answer either. Nobody has fixed this. I think it's not terribly surprising that locking ourselves in a room just amongst ourselves isn't the way to solve our health care uh, crisis. So I believe it needs to be bipartisan. The focus needs to be on bringing the cost of the entire system way down. You do that with competition and market-based reforms. Allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices directly. Relax the rules on reimportation. Uh, relax the rules on generic drugs. We also need competition in the insurance market. Uh, and then the final point I want to make, we have unbelievable healthcare assets here in Northeast Ohio, probably the best in the country. We have incredible hospitals, we have incredible doctors, an incredible uh, medical system. Everything is right here in Northeast Ohio. We need to lead the way in providing an answer for the country on our healthcare challenges. I plan to do that as a member of Congress. Do you want to wrap up? Uh, no. Okay. Thank you. Last question before we go to the audience. At the behest of the President, John Bolton said Friday that Washington will move forward with plans to quit a landmark nuclear arms pact. Bolton called the treaty outdated because the U.S. is restricted in ways other countries are not. Russia and Europe object to the withdrawal. I'd like your stance, and Anthony, you can go first on this one. I'd like your stance on international relations as to whether you as a congressperson would back President Trump's growing isolationism, leaving the intermediate range nuclear forces, the U.N. Human Rights Council, the Iran nuclear deal, et cetera. Well, I think, you know, so first off, I'll, I'll take a somewhat issue with the premise of the question. I believe that ever since the Trump administration has come in and General Mattis has been a part of it, Bolton, et cetera, our world is more stable and safer than it was during the Obama years. ISIS has been completely... Please, <laughs> ISIS. please. It's his time, not Thank yours. You. Can you pause that? Can I get an extra 10 seconds? Thank you. Uh, in the 2016 election, remember ISIS? Remember how every single day we were hearing about a different issue with ISIS? Completely gone. Uh, what, we're what we've seen on North Korea, I've been to the border in North Korea. The day before I got there, Kim Jong-un redeclared war on the United States and South Korea. And yes, there is a lot of work to be done. They need to denuclearize. They aren't even close to being where they need to be on that. But the progress that is made, I'm telling you, it's substantial. It's not an accident. Iran, we empowered Iran. We gave them a clear path towards a nuclear weapon. To do what? Who is their chosen, their chosen enemy? Us and Israel. They are committed to our mutual destruction. The Obama administration empowered them. They were on a path, opting out of that deal, reinstituting the sanctions. Iran's economy is crumbling as a result. These are not accidents. Uh, I understand there's, you know, the tone is different. I get that. But when you look at the actual results, they speak for themselves. I couldn't agree more. If you look at the actual results, they couldn't speak better for themselves. We are so far from being safer and stronger, I can't even put it into words. Uh, you know, coming out of the Iran nuclear deal, uh, 
raised gas prices, let's start there, just an economic issue, but they were not on a path to nuclear weapon. They were under constant uh, monitoring. They were restricting their nuclear access to plutonium level grade for nuclear weapons. Uh, they had agreed to many things. Were there's a lot of terrible rhetoric, ballistic missiles still going? Yes, but that was not part of the nuclear deal. As far as the, you know, the agreement with Russia, Europe is begging us to stay in, absolutely begging us to stay in. Because again, this is on their shores, not ours. So if Russia pulls out of that agreement, they're the ones who are on the front line, not the United States. And we have the ability to pull our, our submarines up to shoreline to have ground-type missiles from the water. So our installations are safe, but we'll put Europeans at risk. The idea should be to bring Russia back to the table and have this discussion, and I think Russia would be open to it because Europe, Europe is pressuring them as well. They want us to stay in this agreement. We have to stop ticking off every single ally we have and start treating people properly so we can move forward with some of these multinational agreements. Thank you both. Take a breath. I'm Rick Jackson, senior host and producer for IdeaStream. Today we are listening to a debate between Anthony Gonzalez and Susan Moran Palmer two candidates vying for Ohio's 16th congressional seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. We're about to head into the question and answer period. Audience questions were pre-selected by the City Club Debate Committee earlier this week. We will also take one question from social media. If you would like to submit a question for consideration, please tweet it at the City Club, that's at the City Club, and use the hashtag OH16Debate. May we have the first question, please? Hello. Um, my name is Joan Keitling. Given that our district, like the nation as a whole, is divided, what are your specific plans for unifying and bringing the people of our district together? Thank you. 90 seconds each. Susan Moran Palmer. Well, I have been all over the district, and it's true. It's such a gerrymandered area, there's disparate needs. I mean, I'm down in Wayne County talking about uh, agricultural and the tariffs, and then I'm all the way up here in Westlake, and it's more bedroom communities, if you will. A lot of bedroom communities in Cuyahoga County and in Stark and in Summit, so a lot of disparate differences. I do hear one commonality that does pull us all together, and believe it or not, it's health care costs. For Wayne, it's a small population spread out over a large agricultural area with one hospital right in the center. So their costs are actually quite high in Wayne County. And then you hear it throughout the district, if their medical costs aren't high, their deductibles have gone sky high. You know, 5,000 for a family isn't abnormal. So that is probably the most commonality I see throughout the district is concerns over health care, and that does pull us all together. Because although the, the Wayne farmers may be truly Trump supporters, they do back me in my health care wants and needs. Worcester Hospital will not stay afloat if we lose the ACA. They were doing 400000 a month in charity care. They will not survive if we go back to not having it. You know, they have a portion of the population that falls below the poverty level, and it was killing the hospital. So for, for Wayne County, that's the thing that pulls us all together. Um, I've done so many events that I've had a great deal of time to talk to everybody and hear everyone's opinions, and I will continue to do that. I think access to your representative kind of helps pull the community together, so it's not so much his versus her, Republican versus Democrat. 90 seconds. Great question. So, um, look, everybody in this room agrees. We, we live in a divided country, and Joan, you are 100% correct. Um, it's, it's difficult and it's challenging. It's disappointing. I think all of us wish that that we were closer together and you kind of could go back to those days where uh, we disagreed, uh, agree to disagree, but we do it respectfully. Um, we've lost that. We've lost a lot of that. We've lost a lot of our spirit. The beauty 
about the 16th district, in my opinion, uh, is how diverse it truly is uh, on economic bounds and, and industry bounds. Um, my opponent's right. We have a fantastic, incredible district. We are so lucky to live here. Um, what I believe with respect to bringing our country together, though, and bringing our region together, uh, is it takes a commitment from our leaders, from our elected leaders, uh, from myself or, or Susan, if, if she wins. Um, but it's, it's across the board. It's every single person in this room. It's every single person on social media. Uh, it's everybody in your communities. It's living the values that we all share. We share these values. I've been around the district, put over 50,000 miles on my car since this, uh, since this race began. And you know what? We are a heck of a lot more similar than we are different. I've met with a lot of Republicans, a lot of Democrats, a lot of independents. There is so much that binds us. And look, our challenges in Northeast Ohio, we have them. The only way we're going to do this is if we move forward as one community. And so I hope to exhibit that type of leadership as a member of Congress and as a leader in this community. Great question. Thank you. Thank you. May we have the next question. Good afternoon. I'm Bill Lavezzi. This past summer, the Supreme Court handed down its ruling in Janus versus AFSCME. That ruling overturned negotiated collective bargaining agreements that had permitted public employee unions to collect fees from union-represented employees who chose not to join those unions. Legislation's been drafted to build on that ruling, for example, seeking retroactive dues and fees refunds or banning payroll deduction of union dues. What's your position on post-Janus legislation such as these examples? You may go first. Thank you, Bill. Great question. Um, so with respect to the retroactive uh, nature of, the, of that bill, I would not support that. I, I believe that part of our system of government, and a phenomenal part, one that we should celebrate, is that you can't be punished for things that weren't illegal when you did them. Uh, and so if, you know, it, it, the, the legislation, as I understand it, would allow uh, folks to get refunds. And, and to me, that puts an undue pressure uh, on the unions who were just following the law uh, at the time that it was, it was in existence. Um, and so that's number one. Uh, and then on the payroll deduction, um, again, I, I, would, I would have to look at that specifically, honestly, a little bit more. Um, but, but as a general rule, uh, what I would say is, um, again, I'm not for punishing unions or organizations that were serving people and following the law uh, as it existed at the time. Thank you for the question. Uh, yeah, the Janus, unfortunately, for me, is just another attack on organized labor. It was couched as a free speech issue. I certainly understand that. But the idea is that it, it's an attack on organized labor. You know, the pendulum is swinging, right? I grew up in the 70s and when unions were very strong, and now it's swung completely the other direction, where we have far less uh, labor rights than we used to. Uh, right now, my last two contracts, I had non-compete clauses for a year and a half. There was mandatory arbitration upon hiring so that I was forced to sign an agreement to be an employee of that company and then a secret chamber negotiation if I was treated poorly. Those type of laws restrict my movement in the labor force, and I'm a high income earner. They've moved it all the way down to now to minimum wage workers, uh, cafeteria workers at college universities have non-compete clauses. Now explain to me what intellectual property <laughs> a cafeteria worker has, and the answer is they don't, but it restricts their movement so that if Marriott, whoever was doing the food service, loses the contract, all those employees can't go to the next person who got the contract. It restricts the movement of labor, and that's part of why we've had a cap on wage increases in the United States, is that we're really restricting labor movement in the United States. And I think that's the main focus of some of these rulings, is it's more downward pressure on middle-income families. Thank you both. 
Hi, I'm Carol Kelleher, and my question is, what, if anything, do you think Congress can do to address gun violence in this country? And do you support any further restrictions on the Second Amendment? Susan Palmer. I am proud to say that I am a gun sense candidate. All that means is I had to have a written policy on what I would back when I got to Congress. Um, I am a gun owner. Uh, I support universal background checks as a gun owner. I support them as a mom. I have three teenage boys that twice a year practice locking down their classrooms. They have to wind around the doorknobs and they have to practice throwing a chair through the window. This is not a normal reaction in society. A Harvard study showed just by adding just that one thing, universal background checks, can reduce gun violence in the United States by 57%. We, we have 30,000 people die in the United States a year to gun violence. I'm not talking about mass shootings, just total gun violence. So that's step one. And I think it should be tried to pass through Congress just that one thing. And we are divided on this issue. We're each going to have to call our congressmen or women and senators and tell them this one thing I want to pass. Because if we don't do anything different, if we keep the same people in power, absolutely nothing is going to change. It's just going to continue on with more and more mass shootings. You can't expect something different if you keep everything the same. The second thing would be the red flag laws. That's when I find universally all my voters all the way through the district like it. Uh, it allows both law enforcement and families to have some control over removing weapons that may be people that are a danger to themselves or others. And I find support for that throughout the district. Great question. So uh, I'm, I'm a new father. My, my first son was born six and a half months ago. And um, there is nothing that is more physically difficult to deal with uh, than to hear about another one of these mass shootings. Um, we just saw an example uh, in Pittsburgh, not at a school, obviously, but a synagogue. And um, you know, we have to do everything we can to stop this. Uh, to me, I think it starts with acknowledging what I believe is a rampant mental health crisis in this country. Every single time one of these happens, you go and you look at the person's social media, you talk to their neighbors, and it's the same sad story. This person exhibited signs, they were threatening people online, they were radicalized online, um, and so we have to do everything we can to treat mental illness. I believe we should put a mental health professional in every school district in the country uh, so that our kids can get, can get the mental health uh, treatment that they need. Additionally, with respect to schools, I, I would commit dollars to hardening the schools, and the, the schools should be able to decide what that means for themselves. That could be metal detectors, that could be an, an additional school resource officer, whatever it is. I agree, it's horrifying that you have to think about this, but, um, but that, unfortunately, as a society, we, we have. And then the last one, um, I would empower the states, I don't believe the federal government should mandate this, but I would empower the states um, to enact the red flag laws of their choice, provided they respect due process and give folks a, a way to get get their, their weapons back, but um, you know, in, in all these instances, um, it's, it's rampant mental health, and I think uh, that's the best way forward. Thank you. I am Gary Lynch, and my question this afternoon, do you support the 2017 tax law, and do you support any changes to that law? Thank you, Gary. Anthony, you may go first. Um, so, yes, I, I do support the tax cuts. Um, I believe that, well, first let's start off with what, what has happened. Uh, the average family in the 16th district is going to get an additional $2,000 per year as a result of the tax cuts. That is real money that they can put back into the economy, do whatever they want with it. I want to empower more families. 
One change I would make, I would make those permanent. Uh, and then with respect to the corporate tax cuts, I believe they were absolutely necessary. Uh, we were losing jobs left and right. We had companies offshoring in Northeast Ohio, moving overseas because our tax code was so uncompetitive. And so as a result, we've reformed the tax code, we've deregulated the economy, and look what's happening. Unemployment, all time low. That is not an accident. World Economic Forum rated us the strongest economy in the world. That is not an accident. Wages are finally starting to rise. We have a lot of way to go, but wages are finally starting to rise. Not an accident. And so all of these things were intentional. They're a direct result of the tax bill. Um, and so I would, I would support that. And, uh, and again, the, the one change I would make, um, I would make the, the individual income tax cuts permanent. Uh, I would also like to look at finding a way to get middle class families uh, more, quite frankly. Um, but absent that, uh, permanence on the tax cuts. You also have 90 seconds. Hi. Uh, a couple things. First off, I think the Americans' reception of the GOP tax bill has been right spot on. It was a tax cut for corporations and the wealthy. It can't be construed as anything else. It's been plain as the nose of my face since the day they passed it. They added $2 trillion to the debt, and the majority of the tax cut goes to corporations and the wealthy. We've had the corporations take their tax cut and do $550 billion worth of stock buybacks, and only 4% of their tax saving has gone to actually raising workers' wages, wages, often in just a single-time bonus. This was not a middle-class tax, middle tax cut, never has been. Unfortunately, it started to become just like a candy store towards the end. Uh, they added real estate riders to allow people to uh, get these massive capital gains deductions if they buy in opportunity zones. I mean, it just kept enormous self-dealing for everyone that was actually doing it. Uh, the president himself uh, gains from that real estate uh, rider. So there was a lot of terrible things that went on in that tax bill. And if we make these tax cuts permanent for the individual level, that is more deficit spending. The point was, if you wanted to do GOP tax cuts for corporations, I'm all in. But you have to pay for it. We didn't need the wealthy in this country getting more tax cuts. And companies were already sitting on trillions of dollars that they haven't invested. And capital expenses, expense, I'll get it up. Capital expenditure investment is down in the third quarter. So they're not putting it back in. Thank you. Hi, I'm Sue Smale. What are some pro-growth policies that you would champion in Congress? Am I first? Let me go first. first. Uh, first off, getting rid of the tariffs would be pro-growth one. Um, it is restricting our businesses. It's picking and choosing winners and losers, which is a bad thing to do. I am a free trade Democrat. I grew up in Youngstown, and I watched the steel industry gutted in my home city. We didn't have a free trade agreement in sight. We were not competitive. That is why we lost the steel industry in Youngstown. We must be competitive on a national level. Removing the tariffs is just one barrier we've created for ourselves. As I mentioned with Ford, a billion dollar loss, we are hurting our own companies with these tariffs. And we're raising the prices for every American family. That's number one. Uh, number two, again, the infrastructure investment, the net neutral. So we're making as much as we're spending on given investments. but. Like I said, things that bring down the cost of electricity in the Midwest would make a huge difference for manufacturers. A lot of our manufacturers were still, one thing they'll never change is Ohio is in the center of the country, right? So we have that locality advantage and reducing our electrical costs 
pulls in manufacturing, and it'll continue to do it the more we reduce electrical costs with these type of infrastructure investments. And again, workforce development has been neglected in Ohio. We've had a real gutting in the state on our education, K through 12, college, we, we're putting no money into, uh, into growing our workforce education level, and I think that's something perhaps we could do a federal grant level match with the state to encourage workforce development. I think those three would be great. Thank you. Mr. Gonzalez. Thank you. It's a great question. Uh, so since day one, I've been talking about ed and workforce reform, um, and I'll tell you a little personal story. So um, look, most of our policies are pushing everybody directly into the four-year college program, and, and that's fine. That's fine for a lot of people, um, but it's not right for everybody. And so I believe that we need to promote uh, we need to promote the four-year college, especially the degrees that are the most meaningful for folks when they graduate, but we also need an opportunity to expand the skilled trades and apprenticeship programs and the community colleges. I have a brother who went to a four-year college, uh, did a great job, did everything he could. He made a decision uh, 10 years after graduating that it would be better to work with his hands. So he went back to school, became an electrician, took him a year and a half, uh, and he's going to do fantastic as an electrician. We need to promote those opportunities. That'll give people the opportunity to take the good jobs that we have in this community. If you're a business, owner, business leader in this community, you have jobs open, uh, but you can't find people to fill them. I want to make sure that everybody has the tools to succeed. Secondly, I talked about health care. We have to bring the cost way down. Um, and then the third one uh, is I do believe we need to correct these international agreements. The reality is China has been taking advantage of us for decades. They decimated our steel industry, they decimated our manufacturing base, they've built up their country, and now what are they doing? Now they're going after our technology base. Now they're going and stealing our technology, forced technology transfer, making us put Chinese uh, nationals on our boards of directors. We need to push back on those policies. So it's that in workforce, it's healthcare, and stronger international agreements. Thank you. Is this a social media question now? Hi, good afternoon to both candidates. Um, one area that has had bipartisan support is criminal justice reform. What areas of justice reform do you think Congress should focus on? Mr. Gonzalez. It's a great question. I think, you know, th this is one of those things, as you said, um, sort of like the Great Lakes, where there is a lot of bipartisan support for reforming our criminal justice system. Uh, I think there are a handful of things that, that we should look at, but, but mainly it's about the approach. Um, the criminal justice system right now, I think we can, we can kind of all agree at this point uh, with respect to locking up too many folks uh, for drug violations and things like that, for small drug violations. I'm not talking issue one stuff. Um, I'm against issue one, by the way. But, um, but in any event, um, we, need to, um, we need to get together with all parties and determine how we can amend some of these drug sentences, some of the low-level stuff. Um, we have in Wayne County right now, there is a, an initiative on the ballot to expand the prison. Uh, and the reason is because we've run out of room. Uh, and so we need to do everything we can to make sure that it makes sense, that we're getting the, the people who are a true threat to our society off of our streets, um, but also finding ways uh, to rehabilitate people and make sure that when they leave uh, prison, that they go back into productive employment. Uh, one of my good friends, not my good friends, somebody I know well, is Maurice Claret, um, if, you, if you know that name. Uh, he is the poster child for uh, what happens when you leave prison and you reform your life. He is running multiple businesses. He has, I think, the number two podcast on iTunes right now, business podcast on iTunes right now. So it can be done, um, but we need everybody to, to help solve this problem. 
Uh, it's twofold for me. I think there is an inherent racism built into our prison systems in the United States right now. Uh, bail bond is a great example of that, where you are taken into custody, you can't pay your bail bond, so they keep you in jail until your hearing, which for some people can be a year or two, depending on where you are and how busy the court system is. Uh, not being able to make bail should not be why you're staying in that jail. Many people take plea agreements just to get out, you know, they admit guilt when they were innocent and just caught in a bad situation, and then they have trouble getting a job. Then they have trouble doing a lot of things that felony convictions happen. So I think there's inherent racism there, and I think you need to work to change the bail bond system so that people don't have to stay in jail if they can't afford it. There are some courts that are progressive on that, but it's not across the country. I think that's one level of it. The other is uh, making sure that personal possession for uh, narcotics, uh, think marijuana, uh, should not be a jail term. We have a lot of nonviolent offenders spending years and years in prison. Uh, you know, treatment's great if you have that option. I think most judges lean to that in the beginning, but uh, we still have a lot of people in jail for personal possession of drugs, and I think we need to look at it from a treatment perspective versus a jail perspective, and that also obviously cuts down on the cost of jails, gets more people out and working and rehabilitated. It is time for our closing statements. Ms. Moran Palmer, you will go first. Each candidate will have two minutes. Well, thank you to the City Club and Rick Jackson for hosting today. This is vital for the transparency in our government that we have a chance to ask questions to our candidates in such a wonderful forum. Uh, I have been in this community for 20 years. I think that matters. I think living through the 2008 financial crisis matters. I think living through the 2010 foreclosures that Cuyahoga County had matters. I've worked in this community with the nonprofit community as part of Providence House for years. I've worked with Westlake on school levies. All this matters. This in, in, integral part I am of my community makes me the most respected person to take this office. You cannot fly in from another state and represent the area that is the Ohio's 16th Congressional District. California needs and Ohio needs are completely different. I am thrilled my opponent wants to come home. He is highly educated and I want him to open a business here. I want him to help run the family business, but not this job. You actually have to be here, live here, to represent the people here. Our differences are, are huge in policy. I have, to afford, I have to protect the Affordable Care Act for my patients in my district. These are their lives on the line. I do not take that lightly, and I have every intention of fighting to win this office, to pre preserve Obamacare and the ACAA, to continue serving the patients in this community that I have my entire life. I'm Susan Moran Palmer. Thank you for coming today, especially everybody who drove up from Wayne County and all over. I appreciate the opportunity here at the City Club. Thank you. Mr. Gonzalez. Again, I want to thank everybody for taking time out of your busy days to be here today. Uh, the, one of the most incredible parts of our country is the ability to vote and to make choices. And I'm thrilled that, that you've all come here to educate yourselves on the, the differences that we have. Uh, campaigns are about differences, differences in style, differences in substance, differences in policies. I think you've heard a lot of the real contrast between my opponent and I. I believe that a smaller government is a better government. I believe that lower taxes and sensible regulation is a better way to grow our economy. I believe in a strong military. I believe that when we empower families with affordable health care options, when we give our children 
all the tools they need to succeed, that anything is still possible in Northeast Ohio. This election is not about personal attacks or the same tired talking points from the 1960s. This election is about a choice with respect to who you want to represent Northeast Ohio in Congress. This election is about the steelworker who wants to know if he'll have a job next month or even next year. This is about the veteran who just wants the health care that he or she deserves. This is about the parents who want to know that their children have all the tools they need to succeed. This election is about real people in the real world. Our best days are ahead of us, but this is not a journey that any of us can take alone. Every business leader, every teacher, every firefighter, Republican, Democrat, Independent, it doesn't matter who you are. This is about Northeast Ohio's future. And I will make this commitment to you. No matter the issue, no matter the obstacle, no matter what's going on in this country, I will do everything in my power, every ounce of energy I have in my body to make this government work for you and your families. I am Anthony Gonzalez. I thank you, and I sincerely and humbly ask for your vote. You may applaud. Today at the City Club, we've been listening We've been listening to a debate between Anthony Gonzalez and Susan Moran Palmer, two candidates vying for Ohio's 16th district congressional seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. The community partner for today's debate is the League of Women Voters of Greater Cleveland. We appreciate your partnership. Additionally, we welcome guests at tables hosted by Anthony Gonzalez for Congress, friends of M. Ross, Greece Financial Partners, Mike Grapel, and the Republican Party of Cuyahoga County. We thank you all for being here today. And that does bring us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Ms. Mr. Gonzalez and Ms. Moran Palmer. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.